Open your Bibles up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I've entitled my message, Removing the Veil from the Bride of Christ. The passage deals with veils here. I've been here 38 years, so I've done a lot of weddings over these years. And occasionally when I do a wedding, a woman will wear a tiara and a veil. Not too much anymore, but they will wear a tiara in her hair and then a veil. At the end of the ceremony, when I pronounce them husband and wife, after that pronouncement, I invite the husband to kiss his bride, and that's kind of a public seal of uh, affection. And of course, he lifts the veil, if she has one on, and then kisses her. If you kiss through the veil, it's about like kissing through a screen door. Not very appealing, okay? So he would lift the veil and then kiss her. Outside of, in our culture, outside of some weddings and some funerals, veils really aren't used much. But in the ancient world, in the Middle Eastern world, the biblical world, they were used every day. And so as Paul wrote about veils, they understood exactly what he was describing. Veils can disguise. Veils hold a mystique we would say. Veils certainly cloud a clear view of the individual. And in this passage of Corinthians, in the New Testament, Jesus lifts the veil from the bride of Christ, not so he can see us better, but so we can see him better, the Bible tells us. That's why I've taken the title, Removing the Veil from the Bride of Christ. All of us should understand that God established two covenants. We refer to them as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in this passage of Scripture, the first or the Old Covenant is being described as being replaced. The Old is being replaced by the New. The first is being replaced by the second, we could say. And it's done so because of the superiority the superiority of the second covenant. That's the point that Paul is making here. So we're going to talk about covenants as well as veils here this morning. Number one, I see in verses 7 through 11, there is a comparison of the covenants. There is a comparison of the covenant. So let's kind of revisit those verses and kind of unpackage them. But if the ministry of death, that's how he refers to the old covenant. The ministry of death, because it condemns sinners. The law condemns sinners. If the ministry of death, written and engraved in stones, what do you think of there? You think of the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that God engraved them in stones. He did it twice, because Moses broke the first set. So he did it twice. They were engraved in stone. The ministry of death, the Old Covenant, written and engraved in stones, was glorious. He doesn't really condemn it. He doesn't belittle it. He says it's glorious. The old covenant was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily, kind of shifts metaphors here, could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. We all know the story from Exodus. Moses spent time up on Mount Sinai with the Lord, 40 days in fact, 
And while he was there with the Lord, we call it the Shekinah glory that came into the temple, but it's with God all the time. We see it in Scripture in different places. Uh, In heaven, there is no need for the sun or the moon because the Shekinah glory of God lights everything. So he's up there on the mount with God. The Shekinah glory of God is literally absorbed into Moses. And when he comes down from the mount, he radiates that glory. It was so bright that the Israelites couldn't look upon him. They said, put a veil over your face. That's what the Bible is telling us. He says here in verse 7, as I continue, Moses, because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, it passed, it was absorbed and decreased as time went on. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. You can't miss what he's saying. Yes, there was glory in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, but the New Testament is much more glorious, so it supersedes, it replaces the old. So first, I want you to notice the New Covenant means life, not death, in verses 7 and 8. The New Covenant means life, not death. Paul contrasts the abiding glory of the New Covenant to the fading glory of the Old Covenant, is what he's doing here. He admitted the old covenant was glorious. He says that, but he insisted that it was also transitory. He mentions that in verse 7. He mentions it again in verse 11. It's passing away. The glory of the old covenant is passing away. It's transitory. Stone tablets that were kept in the Ark of the Covenant, which was eventually kept in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, they had glory associated with them so the stone tablets the animal sacrifices although revered although commanded by God could not bring life they couldn't bring life they were pointing to they were a picture of that which would come someday which was Jesus Christ in the new covenant so under both the old covenant and the new covenant as well as in the Jewish religion, as well as in Christianity, uh, there is a revelation from God and a response from man. There's a revelation from God and a response from man. In the Old Covenant, the revelation was, here is the Decalogue. We know there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament, boiled down to 10 on the Ten Commandments. There was a revelation and there was a response. The response of man was, Keep these commandments. Have a civil society. But mankind could never keep all of the commandments. So there was a revelation, there was a response. In the New Covenant, the New Testament, there is a revelation. Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, a sinless life, died on the cross. The atonement was given, was in the grave, was resurrected, is now in heaven making intercession for us. That's the New Testament. So that's the revelation that we have in the New Testament. And there's a response to receive him as Savior. So both Old and New Covenants have a revelation and a response. The ministry of the law was not evil. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 7, verses 12 and 14, it says the law was good and righteous. 
So the law was not evil. It just couldn't accomplish. It made mankind aware of his sin. It made mankind aware of his sin, but it couldn't purge away its sin. Not the sacrifices, not the keeping of the law. No one can, but it couldn't purge away sin. And Moses literally mediated that covenant. Moses was the human instrument that brought that covenant to Israel, just as Jesus Christ mediates the new covenant. Moses mediated the old covenant, and he reflected that glory in his faith. God allowed that to happen. Because he was the mediator of the old, he absorbed some of that glory, and it was reflected in his face. And according to Exodus chapter 34, 29 through 35, not only could the Israelites not look upon Moses because of the brightness of his face, the countenance of his, his uh, the, the glory of his countenance, but they were afraid to look upon God, of course. They were forbidden to look upon God. When Moses went up on the mount, they couldn't look at Moses when he came down, but they couldn't look at God up on the mount lest they be destroyed. God's glory was absorbed by Moses and that glory eventually faded away. We're not told exactly when it completely was gone, but it faded away at time. They were afraid to look at Moses' face when it was radiant with God's glory. Second, I want you to notice in verses 9 and 10, the new covenant means righteousness, not condemnation. What did the old covenant mean? Condemnation. The new covenant doesn't mean that. The word new in verse 6 here is the word kainos, kainos. It's not the common word for new, neos, which neo-whatever, neo-evangelical, whatever, neo-fundamentalism, whatever you use that prefix with. This is the word kainos, which means new in time and in quality. New in time and in quality. Neos simply just means new in time. So God has given us, he says, in the new covenant, something that's new in time and it's better in quality. That's literally what he's telling us. It's a better covenant. Now we hear in advertising, new and improved. I mean, it's, it's on every soap. It's on every detergent. It's on every product they see. New and improved. We hear that all the time, new and improved. But it usually is just hype. But not in this case. New and improved is exactly what the new covenant is. It is new in time, but it's improved over the old covenant because all the old covenant could do was make us aware of our sin and condemn us to hell. But the new covenant does far more than that. The old covenant condemned mankind because it set such a high standard. No individual could ever fulfill the old covenant. And that was to make us feel, oh, I can't do this. I can't live up to God's expectation. So by faith, they would turn to the Lord. When God enters into a covenant, a covenant is a relationship with a people. So when God called Abraham and the Jews, and eventually they went to Egypt and came out. God made a covenant with them, and he says, okay, we got an agreement. A covenant is similar to a contract, except it's with God and people. Contract is between two people. So God says, okay, I'm making a contract or covenant with you. You're my covenant people. 
if you're going to be my people, I'm going to walk amongst you. Here's what I expect from you. And he gave them the law. This is how I want you to live if we're going to have fellowship. But they couldn't keep the law. So he gave them the sacrificial system. That's the second aspect that he, what he gave to the Old Testament people. He gave them the sacrificial system because they couldn't keep the law so they could go to the temple and they could make sacrifices which would atone for their sins that they couldn't keep under the law. And then he gave them a third thing. He gave them the law, he gave them the sacrificial system, and they tended to wander from that and quit making sacrifices, so he constantly sent them prophets. That's the third aspect. The prophets called them back to the law. The prophets called them back to the temple. The prophets called them back to getting into fellowship with the Lord. Isn't it amazing how gracious our God is? Even in the Old Testament, he was so gracious to them, giving them the law and then the sacrificial system and then the prophets. It is new. The Old Covenant condemned mankind because it set such a high standard they could never fulfill it. But the New Covenant is motivated by love, not by law. The New Covenant is all about love, not law. Instead of a judge plaintiff relationship, God being the judge, and we're the plaintiffs standing condemned before him. It's not a judge-plaintiff relationship. In the new covenant, it's a father-son relationship. He is our father. We're his beloved children. It's a father-son relationship. But understand, we do wrong to the old covenant if we deny that it comes from the same just and good God as the new covenant. God had to give the old covenant to make us aware of our sin. Plus, mankind, mankind needed moral structure. He needed laws because mankind descends into chaos without it. The old covenant came from a good and just and loving God. And we don't want to deny that, but we do, we wrong the new covenant if we put the old covenant on the same level with the new covenant. We can't put the old covenant on the same level with the new covenant. The first is a step to glory. The second covenant is the summon of glory. We have a lot of 14ers here in Colorado. What is it, 54? You start out at the base, you go to the summit. The new covenant is the summit. It's the peak. The old covenant is the base. God had to give us revelation. We believe in progressive revelation. In other words, God doesn't back up the dump truck and dump all of Old and New Testament truth on mankind. He gives us prophets, and then it was written down, and he gives the Old Covenant, and then later he gives us the New Covenant. It's progressive in nature. And the New Covenant is the summit of glory. So I have to ask you, are you trying to do moral or religious things to earn God's favor. Because here in our world, in our culture, in America, as well as around the world, people think, well, I just got to do good. I got to keep the Ten Commandments. I got to treat my neighbor nice, my brother nice, whatever it might be. I just got to keep the law, and that earns God's favor. No, 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 no. It doesn't. God has been completely satisfied with Christ's work on the cross. 
There's nothing that you can do. It's already been done. There's nothing that you can do to bring God's favor or satisfaction or blessing upon your life other than accepting Jesus as your Savior. And then you're in the family. He gives us a desire to obey him and to follow him. We don't want to confuse the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the law with earning God's favor. It was not done for that. It was to teach man he was a sinner and to point us to the New Covenant and the perfect sacrifice. Look at verse 11. The New Covenant is permanent, not temporary. It says in verse 11, for if what is passing away, and Paul was living in a transitory period or transition period in human history. Old was passing away, the new was being put into effect. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious, he says. We hear things like lifetime warranty or diamonds are forever, that kind of thing. But few things in life are permanent. Very few things in life are permanent. The only things that last forever are spiritual in nature. Can I say that again? The only things that last forever are spiritual in nature. You've probably heard me say, people want to be relevant. The only way you can be relevant in any time period in human history is to say things that are eternal. The only way you can be relevant is to speak that which is eternal. Because that's always relevant. So Paul lived in a day when two ages were really literally overlapping. They were overlapping. The old covenant was being replaced by the new. And one of the problems that Paul was dealing with here in the church at Corinth was what? Legalists. Sometimes we call them Judaizers. The Judaizers came to the Corinthians after Paul had established the church there, and they said, if you're really going to be saved, yes, you accept Jesus, but you've got to keep the law. And if you're really going to be a good Christian, yes, you accept Jesus, but you've got to keep the law. And that's why they were called legalists or Judaizers. They were coming confusing people. And they plagued Paul. And that was one of the problems that Paul is dealing with. And that's why he's expounding upon this idea. The old is passing away. That's done. That's over. That's history. The new is in place now. In A.D. 70, the Romans, under the general Titus, destroyed Jerusalem, crucified thousands of the people lined the roads with crucified Jews. In AD 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple completely, leveled it. It's that way today. Today, there is no temple, there is no priesthood, there is no sacrificial system, and even if the temple was rebuilt, there would still be no Shekinah glory because the Shekinah glory is with the Savior, And the Holy Spirit is now with us. God dwells within us. At that time, the Spirit of God dwelt in the temple. You had to go to the temple if you were going to commune with God. Today, he indwells us as believers. We wouldn't say the Shekinah glory dwells within us, but we have the Spirit within us. 
The old covenant needed replacing because the new covenant is eternal. And that's what Hebrews chapter 9 expounds upon. The old covenant had to pass away. The new covenant's going to be put in place because the new covenant is superior and it's eternal, he tells us. The old covenant was glorious, and he says that here twice because it showed man he was a sinner. But the new covenant is better because it provides a savior. It does more than just show us that we're sinners. It provides the solution, the savior. That's why it's so much superior. When the sun has risen, we put our flashlights away. If you've been camping, you got lantern, you got flashlights, you got maybe got a campfire. But when the sun comes up, you don't need the flashlights. They don't put off nearly what the sun does. You don't need a lantern. It doesn't put off nearly what the sun does. That's the point I'm making and that Paul is making better yet, that the old covenant can be set aside because the new covenant is so much better, so much more radiant, so much more glorious, he says. Today, men are still choosing between trying to keep the law or embrace the cross. Really, you can divide up all the world into either religion or Christianity. Religion says do, do, do. Christianity says done. Done. Nothing you can do to have eternal life. It's done. Mankind is still choosing between trying to keep the law or just embrace the cross. Religion describes people working to earn God's favor. Grace describes people resting in God's work. Let me say it again. Religion describes people working to earn God's favor. Grace describes people who are resting in what God's work has already done. Let's see some conclusions from the covenant, verses 12 through 18. I see, first of all, transparency is essential. Therefore, you know, when we see that in the New Testament, that means based upon something that's just been explained to us, revelation that's just been given to us, we respond. Therefore, since we have such hope, he's talking about the hope that we have in Christ. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Paul says, knowing this, knowing this truth, this settled truth, that Jesus Christ is the New Testament, he is the new covenant, that we don't have to keep the law, that we're living by grace. We have great boldness in our preaching, in our sharing of the gospel. We, we have affirmation, we have confidence, we have assurance that this is God's plan and it's settled is what he's saying. Matter of fact, in verse 12, we find the word Parisia. This word is used 22 times in the New Testament, translated either boldly or openly, and that's the idea right here in verse 12. If you're involved in a ministry of increasing glory, you can be bold. If you're involved in telling people about the glory that awaits them in heaven and that it's all paid for by Jesus Christ, you can afford to be bold. It's good news. Assurance provides for boldness. And our New Testament message will never be superseded. It can never be surpassed. In other words, there's not going to be a third covenant. 
There's not going to be additional revelation. We've got all there is. We've got all that we need, everything that we need for life and godliness. But we've got all of God's revelation given to us in the new covenant. Originally, Moses wore the veil because of the brightness that shone through his face that the people couldn't look upon him. But later, the Bible tells us here, he wore the veil because his glory was fading. And I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe he didn't want the people to realize the glory that he had was now fading away. Maybe he was fearful they wouldn't respect him or look as highly upon him or obey him. Or I'm not really sure. But the Bible tells us that in the beginning he wore it because the brightness was so bold, so noticeable that he had to wear a veil. But he kept wearing the veil really to hide the fact that the radiance, the glory of the Lord was now missing and fading. Paul's point is this. The veil that was used by Moses to conceal and even was used to conceal the fact that his glory was fading as the mediator of that covenant. And even today, there is a veil concealing the truth to the Jews. That's what he says. Let's, let's read that again. Like the verse 13, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded for until this day. So he's talking about the Jews then. They had hard hearts and blind eyes. We know that. They had hard hearts and blind eyes. But until this day. So it, didn't, it wasn't just an old covenant thing. The Jews still have that problem today. That's tragic. They rejected their Savior, and so God put a veil over their eyes. That same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. In other words, that veil is going to be over their eye where they can't behold Christ the way we, the bride of Christ, the church of the New Testament, can. That veil will remain over their eyes until they accept Christ. And that only happens here and there, as we well know. The Jews, because of the rejection of their Messiah, have a hardness of heart. They have a blindness over their eyes, and that's why they refuse. They refuse to read Isaiah 53 because it's such a clear picture of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. So there's a veil over their eyes. There's a hardness in their heart, and God tells us that, Paul mentions that to us to conceal and even today the veil conceals the truth to the Jews that inability to see the truth remains to subsequent generations he says even till today Jews and all believers fail to see that the law was not the final word from God it was the preparatory word from God it's not the summit it's the base it's not the second covenant it's the first covenant Moses removed his veil in the presence of God. The Bible tells us that. When he was in the presence of God, Moses lifted the veil and communed with God without any shroud. Anyone who comes to Christ has the veil of misunderstanding removed as well. I remember because I wasn't saved until I was an adult. I remember hearing people talk about reading the Bible. I thought, why? What's the big deal? I mean, 
It's a dusty old tome, a dusty old book. Why would anybody want to read something that some of it was penned thousands of years ago? Why would somebody want to do that? But after I came to Christ, after I got born again, I realized this is, this is life. This is, this is God speaking to us. This has got the answers for every question that I've ever had. This is the book. It is. Anyone who comes to Christ, the veil of misunderstanding is removed as well. So I have to ask you, has the veil been removed from your eyes? Do you know Christ? Do you commune with him personally? The Bible says that Moses communed with God like a man talks to his friend. That's pretty unusual. He's the only person in the Old Testament really that common is made about. But as New Testament Christians, we can commune with God. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through a sacrificial system. We can commune with God. The priesthood of the believer is a tenet of New Testament teaching. Do you commune with God? Do you understand his word? The Bible says if you've been saved, the veil of your understanding has been lifted and you can understand the word of God. Do you understand it? The Jews were so focused on the administration of their religion, doing their religion, that they missed the message of God. The message of God in the personage of Jesus Christ came, did miracles, did teaching like they'd never heard before, but they were so loyal to their religion, they were so loyal to the old covenant that they missed the living message right in front of them. Sometimes people can be so committed to their religious upbringing, whatever that might be, Catholic, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, you name all the religions here in America or around the world, they can be so committed to their religion that they completely miss the truth of Jesus Christ. What a shame. It can still happen today. And then, look, second, not only is transparency essential, but transformation is expected. In verses 17 and 18, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We're not under the law, one of the points he's making. Verse 18, but we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. He's likening the Bible, the New Testament, to a mirror that reflects who we really are and what we really need. We all beholding ourselves in a mirror. The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, from one stage of glory to the next stage of glory by the Spirit of the Lord. 17 and 18 is telling us that transformation is expected of Christians. The Spirit gives life. Verse 17 says that, and that's linked to verse 6 here. The Spirit gives the life. Jesus Christ died on the cross. God planned salvation. Jesus Christ provided salvation. The Holy Spirit is the administrator of that salvation, brings it to us. Verse 17 and 6 say the same thing. The Spirit brings it to us. The Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit are at times used interchangeably. Romans 8, 9, Galatians 2, 20. The law puts us under the penalty, being slaves to sin, but the Spirit has the key to unlock forgiveness, eternal life, and to set us free. That's what he's saying in verse 17. 
Verse 18 is a familiar verse. Literally translated, verse 18 says, We who with unveiled faces radiate the Lord's glory while being transformed into his likeness. Now that's a heavy thought. By spending time with God, we radiate the glory of God. It's likening it back to Moses, except there's a difference. Moses reflected the glory of God. We radiate the glory of God because we have the Spirit of God within us. We spend time with God with our unveiled face looking into the mirror of his word and we absorb that glory and we are being transformed into his likeness. Moses reflected it. We radiate it through the work of the Spirit. And you recognize the word. We are being transformed. You recognize that Greek word is metamorpho. Metamorpho, where we get metamorphosed. Metamorphosis is what we think of when we see a larva, a worm, attached to a, a leaf or a branch, but later it becomes a butterfly after it forms its cocoon and it flies away. An ugly larva becomes a beautiful butterfly. And that process is called transformation, or the original word metamorphosis. And that's the word that's used here. God is in the business through his spirit of transforming us from the ugly, earthly, sinful beings that we are to reflect and radiate the glory of Christ in Christ's likeness. So we have to ask, is that happening in your life? Is that going on internally with you? Metamorphosis is something that happens internally and then it's launched. Or someday we're going to be launched, that's for sure, into glory. Is it true of us? It should be. Justification starts the process. Sanctification continues the process. Glorification concludes the process. But the goal of all three, justification, sanctification, glorification, the goal is Christ-likeness. That's what we're studying in our previous hour in the adult Bible classes right now, Christ likenesses. Is that true of us? Or do you feel like you've plateaued? You quit growing, you quit being transformed or metamorphosized. Although the outman, the outward man decays every day, the Bible says the inward man is being renewed, growing being transformed daily. Chances are, if you were paying attention in high school or somewhere along the line, you read in English lit Hawthorne's short story, The Great Stone Face. As a boy, then as a youth, and throughout his years of manhood, the individual from the village below loved. He was mesmerized. He stared at the great stone face on the side of a mountain. He studied the carved face and contemplated on its prophecy. When one day, when he was old, he came down into town and everyone shouted, he has come. The great stone face has come. That story is illustrating this truth. We imitate that on which we meditate. 
we begin to imitate that which we think of. The Bible says it this way. As a man thinketh in his heart, so he becomes. What you think about, what you're dwelling on, is what you will be like in the future. What you think about is what you're going to be like 10 years down the road. I sometimes joke with people, I like to go to, I like to, go to the, the new car lots and look around at the new cars so I know what I'm going to be driving in 10 years. <laughs> But what we look at and what we meditate on, what we imitate right now, is what we're going to be like 10 years from now. That's the point. We become what we worship. We become like what we worship. What we adore, what we spend time with, what we desire. We become like what we worship, which should affect our priorities. H.A. Ironside, the great preacher from Chicago, changed the words from the song, take time to be holy, speak off with thy Lord, to better reflect the very teaching in this passage. He changed just one word. He said, take time to behold him. Very similar to be holy, but take time to behold him. The Bible teaches if we behold the Lord, it changes us. Take time to behold him, speak off with thy Lord. So my challenge to you is to behold him this week. Spend time with the Lord contemplating his character, his majesty, his glory, his sacrifice, his mercy, his love. Just turn them over in your mind. Take time to behold him and then do it again next week and the week after. Let me add this you're here today and you don't feel that transformation has taken place in your life and you look in the word of God and you say it's a mysterious book to me you need to be saved you need to be born again you need to have the spirit of God come into your life he needs to become your savior and your lord if you haven't done that I invite you to do that today let's bow and pray father as we bow before you We know that we can't transform ourselves, no matter how disciplined or committed or structured we might be. We need the Spirit of God to transform us at the point of justification or salvation. And we need the Spirit of God to continue to work in our life, transforming us. We know that comes through beholding you in the Word, communing with you in prayer, learning about you in church. So help us as we make commitments today. There are people here today that maybe haven't grown in their spiritual walk in some time. They're about where they were five years ago. And there may be some people here today, Lord, that do not know you in a personal way. They're still in their sins. They're still hell-bound. They're still without Christ. May today be the day they cry out to you in salvation and say, save me, Lord, a sinner. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We come to the end of our service here today. If you need to do a transaction with God, don't miss this last part of our service. This is a time where we take the word of God and we apply it. It's not my words, it's the Word of God. We, we say, okay, God, I hear what you say in this passage. 
I need to respond. That's what this song at the end is doing. Yes, we're singing the Lord, but we're responding to him. So if you need to respond to him, do so right now before you leave.